0: You want to open up your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 4? Be looking there, God's word this morning. So, last week you heard about this idea of worshiping God in spirit and in truth, and it got me thinking about many other questions that are connected to this idea of worship and what it looks like for us to worship in the new covenant. As members of the new covenant, as people that have been saved by God's grace, what does worship look like for us? And connected to that is this idea of rest and what does it mean for God's people to rest and worship Him? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, the truth is that there's one thing that unites us all this morning, and that's that we're tired, (laughs) right? That we're tired, we're worn out. Maybe it's a sleepless night you had with a kid. Maybe it's a family matter. Maybe it's a job that has you exhausted. Maybe it's worries or cares of this world. Maybe it's the political climate of our day. Maybe it's the economic climate of our day. Whatever it is, many things have us feeling tired and worried and It doesn't matter. It could be physical things. It could be spiritual things. It could be emotional things. There are many things that we are tired about, and we long ultimately for rest. (laughs) We have this desire in us for rest, but we find it to be a very fleeting thing. Maybe you take a, a nap. Maybe you finally get enough time to set aside to take a nap, and you wake up and you feel refreshed, but soon after that, you're tired again. Each day is this This pattern of of working and rest. And no matter how much rest we get, I just came back from a a short vacation. You come back and it's straight to work. (laughs) It doesn't matter how much rest you get, there's always this fleetingness of our rest. And we long for this rest, but so often I think in this life we look for it in the wrong places. We try to find our rest, our ultimate rest, in things of this earth. We long for something more than the rest that we find here, but we end up looking for it in all the wrong places. And I think a lot of this comes down to how we view rest and how we ultimately view worship. That we were created to worship. We were created by God to worship Him. This is how He created us to be in communion with Him and to worship Him. And we were actually, my wife reminds me of this often, we were created to work. Work is something that was present before the fall into sin. So we are created to work, and we were, old Adam and Eve were working free from sin and curse. They were working unto God, and it was going to end in this great rest that God had held out for them, this everlasting glory. But as we talked with the kids this morning, that because of sin, our work is cursed. And we know this very well in our day, whether it's a job you go to or uh, homemaking, Our work is cursed. Our work is cursed because of the fall. Our worship even is mixed with unbelief, and it's mixed with all these things. Our rest itself is fleeting from us at every moment. But as we look to God's word this morning, my hope is that we'll see that God has not left us alone. He's not left us without hope, without help, without great and many promises. And we'll see this morning that God has promised rest for his people. He has promised rest for His people. A Sabbath rest and eternal glory with Him. And this has been secured by Christ. It's this ultimate rest that God has given us, but He's also given us a token, a pledge of that rest that we are to live and walk in, which is what we call the Lord's day. And so the hope this morning is that as we look at Hebrews chapter 4, We'll see the purpose of this idea of God's Sabbath rest. What is it? What is the purpose of it? We're gonna look and see how this is connected to Christ and his work of salvation. And then we're gonna look at ultimately why this is important for us in our rest and our worship as the people of God. So if you want to open up your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to be focusing mainly on verses 9 and 10, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 just to give us some context this morning. So the author to the book of Hebrews has been laboring to show the superiority of Christ in all things and he is going to talk about this rest that God has held out for his people and the implications of that. So here now the reading of God's word, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, But the message that they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, quoting Psalm 95, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever or the one who has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, this special revelation that you have given to us, your people, by which we might not only see and understand and hear the word of the gospel, the promise that all those who are in Christ have been saved from their sins and forgiven of their iniquity and given the perfect righteousness of Christ. But we also see the manner in which we should live and worship you. And we pray this morning that we would not be like that generation in the wilderness that hardened their hearts and did not enter your rest, we pray this morning that you would soften our hearts by your Spirit, that we would hear your Word and the implications of your Word this morning, and we would come this morning to rest in Christ and obey all of your commands because of what you have done in our hearts. We pray and ask that you would do these things in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. So, the book of Hebrews, if you're not familiar with, is all about the superiority of Christ in all things. From beginning to end, the book is all about how the Lord Jesus Christ is superior to everything. And mostly, many of these things are related to the Old Testament. And so the, the, the book begins with a discussion about how Jesus is greater than the angels, He's greater than the angels, he's greater than Moses, he's greater than the high priest of the Old Testament, the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Jesus is superior to all of these things. And we see that the main reason, especially in these first couple chapters, why Christ is superior is because he's the Son of God. He's greater than the angels because he created the angels. (laughs) He's greater than Moses because he's not just a servant in God's house, He's the obedient son over God's house. And so the the writer to the book of Hebrews is drawing out the implications of these truths for the people of his day. And he's writing because the people of his day, like the wilderness generation, have gone astray. They've become disobedient. They've doubted God and his promises, and they're putting their hope in earthly rest. This is what was happening in that day. They're doubting God. They're doubting His promises. And they've actually abandoned meeting together. They've stopped meeting together and they've stopped worshiping. They're actually trying to go back to the Jewish synagogues, the Jewish places of worship. And so he's exhorting the people to remain to remain steadfast and trust in the promises of God. He's showing them that true rest is found only in, in Christ, and the importance of this Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God. And in the passage we read, he quotes all the way from Genesis chapter 2, Psalm 95. He is going all over the scriptures to labor to prove this point about rest, Sabbath glory, and what it means for us today. So we're going to look at three things this morning. You can follow along on your handout. We're going to look first at God's Sabbath glory, God's Sabbath glory, God's Sabbath rest. What does this mean and where do we find this in Scripture? Secondly, we're going to look at Christ's accomplished work, Christ's accomplished work in light of what God has held out for man. And then finally, we're going to look at the believer's Sabbath rest, the believer's Sabbath rest. So, first, to to rightly understand this idea of Sabbath, this idea of God's Sabbath glory and rest, we need to go back to the beginning of the scriptures, as the author to the Hebrews does, to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. You could turn there now if you wanted. We see at the beginning of the scriptures, from the very first verse, that it is the triune God, Father and Son and Spirit. That, that have created the world and all that's in it. They spoke into existence that which was not. They spoke into being creation and all that is in it, things visible and things invisible, that God as the great king, the eternal self-existent one, he spoke and it came to be. And we see that in Genesis chapter one, creating the world and all that is in it in six days. This is what we call God's work of creation. God's work of creation. God said, Let there be, and behold, there was. (laughs) God said, Let there be, and behold, there was. This is creation ex nihilo. From nothing, God created all things. But we see in chapter two of Genesis, we see that the seventh day is unique. The seventh day is unique. We read about this in Genesis chapter 2 verses 1 and 3. It says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. We see that on the seventh day, God enters into his Sabbath rest. Not because he's tired, not because he needs a break from his labor. God is all-powerful. He neither grows tired nor weary. So it's not because he is because he needs a break, it's not because he needs a nap, an extra day to, to rest, it's because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. It's a symbol that he has completed his work as, of creation. It's, the imagery in this passage is like one of a king. It's this imagery of God entering into his royal rest. And we see this reflected throughout the scriptures in parallel passages. It's almost like there's this picture of Yahweh Entering into this royal rest as the cosmic king of the universe. He made man as this kind of penultimate um, one that's going to rule over creation, but it is God himself who rules over all things. And this is God entering into his Sabbath rest, ruling over all that he has created. God, the great king, over his cosmic house, having completed his work of creation, sits down in this enthroned Sabbath glory, this Sabbath rest that we see in Genesis chapter two. And as we said, he's not sitting because he's tired, but he is taking satisfaction and delight in his finished work. And so we see this pattern very early in the scriptures of God working and then entering into rest. This pattern of work and then rest. God works six days, And on the seventh, he rests. And we even see he consecrates this seventh day and blesses this day unto the Lord. And so as we go through the book of Genesis, we see that man is made in God's image, right? Man is made in the image of God to reflect God's glory and image his creator. So God did not just do this for himself. He did this for man to image him in this way. Six days man is to work in this garden temple that God has created and put him in, but on the seventh day he is to rest imaging his creator. This Sabbath keeping of man was serving two functions. One, it's not only showing his submission to the Lord, right? He's saying, I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm not going to serve myself. I'm going to serve the Lord, the one who make me. It's his confession that Yahweh is the Lord. He's committed his service to him alone, a weekly pledge of his allegiance to Yahweh and consecration to the Lord of all creation. So we see this sort of ethical dimension that this, that this um, Sabbath keeping has ethical meaning moral. It is man's obedience to God to act in this way. And we see that reflected in the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment in the book of Exodus actually references this passage in Genesis chapter 2, giving justification for this commandment. So we see this ethical dimension. Man is to image God in this way. But we also see there's another dimension, the eschatological dimension. I just like to say that word, <laughs> the eschatological dimension, this greater, more glorious end that was held out for man, that man was to look forward not only to the seventh day in an earthly sense, but to the ultimate eternal eschatological rest that God had held out for man. Because we find in Hebrews that the seventh day is not like the other days. There's not morning and evening it's an eternal day. It's a day that does not have an evening. And so this is telling us that there's something unique about this seventh day. That Adam, made in God's image, is given this covenant of works by which he is to image God by working, keeping this garden temple, and upon completion of the work, in obedience to Yahweh, God will reward him with eternal Sabbath rest. And so we see man is to image God. He is to work in this covenant of works and enter God's Sabbath rest. Or another word for this is eternal glory, everlasting life. This is the promise that was held out for man in the covenant of works. Adam was to obey. He was to work and enter God's rest. He was to complete the task. He was to keep God's law. He was to defeat the serpent and Satan, and God would reward him with eternal Sabbath rest. And kids, if you remember from the catechism this morning, how does this story end? (laughs) It doesn't end with Adam entering into Sabbath rest. It ends with Adam's failure and his sin. Adam and Eve break this covenant of works, They thrust all of humanity into sin and death and us in Him, and that is why they're suffering in this life. That's why we're all so tired. (laughs) That's That's why we're never able to enter that rest. We're never able to really feel rested. We cannot find this rest in this life. Because of sin, we cannot earn eternal life, and we cannot enter God's rest on our own merit. We are restless. Restless is a great way to describe the world that we live in, in many ways. The world is restless. It, it's longing for something more. It's longing for something greater and other than the rest that we find in this life, but it doesn't find it. <laughs> it can't find it apart from the work of God. And so we see very early on <coughs> excuse me, in the scriptures that Adam and his sin have kicked us out of this ability to earn God's Sabbath rest. But we see in Genesis 3.15 this promise, not of the covenant of works, but God's covenant of grace. We see in Genesis 3.15 in the promise of the serpent-crushing seed of the woman, that one will come that will defeat the serpent. One is going to come and crush the head of Satan and defeat all of our enemies and make a way for us back into God's Sabbath rest. One is going to do this, and this is what we see in Genesis 3.15. And it's actually what we see throughout the Old Testament, That's what the author of Hebrews is kind of pulling out. He's talking about Joshua. He's talking about David. He is going back to the Old Testament and showing how the promises of God's rest were present throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. And we see this promise of rest in the Old Testament, this pattern of work to enter into rest. And this is what the author of Hebrews draws out. He talks about the promised land of Canaan, right? The promised land of Israel, the promised land of God's people, this land flowing of milk and honey. It was meant to be a type of the rest that was held out for God's people. It wasn't the ultimate rest, it was a type and shadow held out for God's people, that if they obeyed, if they followed God, if they believed, that He would give them this type of rest. But as we see in Hebrews chapter 3, this wilderness generation did not enter because of their hardness of heart, because of their unbelief, because of their, because of their disobedience, we see, And even though Joshua, the one that comes after Moses, even though he will take this generation, the next generation, into the physical earthly promised land, we see from this passage in Hebrews that this was not the ultimate goal. Even though Joshua does bring the next generation in, we see that this is not the ultimate goal. This was always meant to be a picture of, Of something greater. And we read about this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8. If you want to look there with me, the the author of Hebrews says this For if Joshua had given them rest, that is the ultimate rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. If Joshua gave them the real thing, God would not have said, There's another day coming of rest. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying that this land was a type of rest. And this is what he draws out in quoting Psalm 95, that even David in writing this psalm is looking forward to a greater rest, even though David had what we might call the greatest picture of rest in the Old Testament, because he not only was in the promised land, but he defeated all the enemies of God's people during that time. And even then, David recognizes there's a greater rest. There's something even greater than this earthly rest from all of our enemies. Something greater than that is coming. Something greater than the Old Testament seventh day Sabbath. Something greater than the feast days, than the years of Jubilee, where all the slaves would be set free and all the, all the debts forgiven. Something greater than that would be coming. A rest that all of these things ultimately pointed to. And so the Old Testament is what I like to call, it's a leaning. It's leaning. It's looking forward to an ultimate Sabbath rest for God's people that wasn't found in the land, that wasn't found in the seventh day Sabbath, that wasn't found in the conquering of earthly enemies, but found and pointed to something greater. This brings us to our second point this morning, Christ's accomplished work. Christ accomplished work. That what we see when we get to the New Testament is our Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, He comes on the scene, and what does He say in the Gospel accounts? He comes and He declares that He alone is Lord of the Sabbath. In Matthew 12, verse 8, He says, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He declares himself the Lord of the Sabbath. This is not only making a claim to God, to be God. He's not only saying I'm God because only God is God of the Sabbath, but he is also saying that I am the one that will obtain true Sabbath rest for God's people as the obedient son, over God's house. That's what the, the writer to Hebrews is saying in chapter 3, verse 6. He's saying Christ is faithful over God's house as his son. And Jesus is declaring, I'm the one that's going to bring God's people into Sabbath rest. Christ has come to do what the first Adam failed to do. Work and enter God's rest our Lord Jesus Christ, as the last Adam, has come to do the work of accomplishing redemption. New creation. Not creation, but new creation. Accomplishing the redemption for God's people that they could not do themselves. Pardoning their sin and iniquity, atoning for their transgression, securing perfect righteousness for God's people, and bringing them, at the end of all things, into eternal life and God's Sabbath rest. This is what our Lord Jesus has done. He has worked in redemption and enter God's Sabbath rest. He has accomplished our redemption and upon his resurrection from the grave on the first day of the week as a new creation and his ascension into heaven, he goes where the first Adam failed to go, namely glory and God's rest. And as we say so often in in this church, we say he did this for us and for our salvation. He didn't do this for himself. He didn't do this for his own benefit, but he did it for the benefit of his people. He gives these gifts of redemption freely. And so we can make this parallel as we look, and this is what the author of Hebrews is doing, Just as God rested on the seventh day from His work of creation, right? God worked six days and rested from His work of creation, entering His Sabbath rest, our Lord Jesus, upon His resurrection on the first day of the week, has rested from His redemptive work of new creation. And that is exactly the parallel that the author of Hebrews is saying in verse 10. And I think the reason that we, we struggle to make this connection is sometimes because of our translation. And John Owen in his commentary labors to make this point in verse 10 that that word there that's translated in the ESV as whoever is better translated as the one who has. So it would read like this. For the one who has entered God's rest, the Lord Jesus Christ, has also rested from his works as God did from his. So the parallel that's being set up here is the the parallel of creation and new creation. Christ is paralleling what the God did in the work of creation in his work of new creation. Just as God rested from his work of creation, Christ has sat down at the right hand of the Father, resting from his work of new creation. So the parallel is not between us and God, because there's no works that we do that parallel God's work of creation, right? There's nothing that you and I do that parallel that work. The parallel that's being set up is between Christ as the one who has sat down, who has finished this work of new creation, of redemption, of accomplishing salvation for God's people. Christ has defeated sin, Satan, and death. He has worked and accomplished the redemption. What does he say on the cross? It is finished. The work is done. It's complete. Not this work of creation, but this work of new creation for God's people. And upon his ascension and sitting down at the right hand of God the Father, he has rested from this work. There's no more work of of, of redemption that needs to be done. <laughs> Christ has finished it. There's no more left to be done. And so I think we would kind of expect right now about this point to say, great, let's close our Bibles. Let's go home, right? But that's not where this passage ends. And I really want to draw out um, the significance of what we see in God's Word. And that's what brings us to our third point this morning, the believer's Sabbath rest. The believer's Sabbath rest, that in verse 9, the author makes what might be in our day, I think, a kind of shocking conclusion. He makes what might be considered a shocking conclusion. It's understanding and knowing that all of these Old Testament pictures pointed to something greater, knowing that Christ has entered God's rest for his people. He says in verse 9, he says this, so then, because of this, therefore, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains a thing to do, an ordinance to keep, a day of rest. You could literally say, there remains a Sabbath-keeping ordinance. And it's very interesting what the author to Hebrews is doing here. He has taken a verb that is used to keep the, when you want to say keep the Sabbath, you you use this verb, and he has turned it into a noun. And it's translated as those two words you see there in verse nine, Sabbath rest, a sabbatismos, different than all the other words in the passage that are used for rest. He creates a word (laughs) to say what he wants to say. And he says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath keeping ordinance for the people of God. Or we could translate it, not translate it, but we could paraphrase it like this. There remains a keeping of the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's day for the people of God, members of the new covenant, that this first day of the week we are to set aside for the worship and rest of God. Now, there are many objections to what I just said. <laughs> there are many and maybe some of them are in your mind even now. There are many objections to this translation of these passages and this interpretation, and some of which I actually used to held hold, sorry. Some of them some of the people will say that the sabbath is only for the people of Israel in the old covenant. It's only mentioned there. It's not for us today. It did not begin at creation, they would say. It has nothing to do with Christian ethics or morals, and it is not to be commanded for others to keep. That Christians are free to gather on whatever day they want. There's no commandment saying one day or another. And I think those that take that interpretation would struggle to account for verse 9 that we see in chapter 4. But I think others with a good desire and a good intention would say something like this. They would look actually at verse 3 and they would say, See, look, it says, We who have believed enter that rest. And they would, they would take that to mean that every day for the Christian is a day of rest. Every day is the Sabbath. Every day, as a Christian, I've believed in Christ, I've entered God's rest. And they would say something like, I've heard this before, Jesus is my rest, Jesus is my Sabbath, kind of things like that. Like every day is kind of a day of rest. Every day is a Sabbath for the Christian. And it's actually a year like this year that caused myself to start to look into these things. It was the year when Christmas fell on the Sunday, when Christmas fell on the Lord's Day. And there was churches all around the area canceling service because they were wanting people to have Christmas with their families. And I remember hearing people say things like, Jesus is my rest, so I don't need to, we, it's okay if we cancel on this day, or Jesus is my Sabbath, I'm always in Sabbath rest. And, and, and it caused me to kind of think through these things, and when the rubber hit the road, you have to ask yourself, what, what is Scripture saying? What is this passage teaching? What are the implications of this for the Christian life? And while I think there are truth, there's truth to some of these words, I don't think it makes sense of all of what is being said in verse 9. And actually, it kind of flips the verse on its head because he's drawing an implication from what Christ has done as entering God's rest, and then bases his conclusion on that truth. And so we can say, we can agree that there is a present salvation rest for the people of God. There is a present salvation rest that God's people enter. By faith, you and I, we have entered God's rest in the new covenant. We don't need to work to labor. We don't need to work our fingers to the bone, right? Christ has done it all. We are already entering this present salvation rest. And there is also a future, as I said, eschatological rest that is that we will enter at the end of all things when God glorifies his people and brings them to himself. So there's this already not yet reality that we're talking about. But what verse 9 is saying is that there is also a present ecclesiastical or churchly rest for God's people. This is what we call the Lord's Day. There remains a Sabbath-keeping ordinance for the people of God, the Christian Sabbath. And what this is, at, at its core, it's a symbol of the future that we are presently called to participate in. It's a looking forward to what God has done in Christ and what He will do at the end of all things, grounded upon the finished work of Christ. I like what Richard Barcelo said in his book, Getting the Garden Right. He says this, the Christian Lord's Day, the first day of the week, is both a looking back to the resurrection as the accomplishment of salvation and a sign looking forward to the final eschatological rest. It's looking back at what Christ has done, and it's also looking forward. So when you and I gather on the Lord's day, when we come together and worship God in spirit and in truth as a local church each Sunday, week after week, in word and sacrament, in confession and prayer, and worship and rest, what we're doing is we're looking forward to the ultimate Sabbath. We're saying this is not our home. <laughs> our home is someone somewhere greater and other than this world. We are looking to enter God's Sabbath rest that Christ has already entered as the last Adam for us and for our salvation. We're saying Christ has done it and we are looking forward to that day when we will be with Him forever. It's a glorious picture and pledge of heaven itself. What better place, what more in-depth picture are we going to get of what heaven looks like than coming together and worshiping God with God's people. That's what we'll be doing for eternity. And so, we participate in this now, in this day of rest, but it's ultimately looking forward to the glory that God has held out, the glorious Sabbath rest that He has promised because of the work of Christ. And so as we begin to apply this passage and understand what it means for our lives, there's really only one point that we have this morning, and is basically to just restate verse 9, that there remains a day of rest for the people of God. There still remains in the new covenant a day of rest for the people of God. We are not in heaven yet. (laughs) We are not in heaven yet. We want to be, we long to be, but this is not heaven. We are not, we have not yet entered into God's eternal rest. And that's what I think a lot of these uh, interpretations of this verse fail to gather. They say, yes, every day is a rest. Every day is this. But there's a not yet aspect to our worship. There's a not yet aspect to our rest. We have not yet entered God's eternal rest. And because of this, each week we are called to set aside one day, one day in seven, to worship with God's people and to rest from our earthly labors. We are to worship God and what he has done and rest from our earthly labors. Not to earn something, not to earn something from God, but because of what God has done in Christ. And so the call this morning for us here at Covenant is to persevere in this keeping of the Lord's day to persevere in the Sabbath rest that remains for God's people, because this is exactly what the people that the author of Hebrews is writing about were struggling with. They had abandoned the worship of God. They were going back to the seventh day worship. They were going back to the synagogues. They were going back to these other places of worship, and they were saying, Jesus is not the Lord. Jesus is not the Son of God. He's not God. And so we're going, to keep it. we're going to keep these parts of Jesus, but we're going to get rid of this idea of the new creation, of this idea of God's resurrection from the grave and the person and work of Christ. And so this is exactly what the author to Hebrews is writing about and talking to the about. And we see this in verse 11. He says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What's he say in chapter 10? He says, Do not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some. But each day encourage one another that there's this call to attend the ordinances of God, the ordinary means of grace. Recognizing that Christ has done everything. He's done it all. It's not a work to add to our salvation. It's because of what Christ has done that we meet together and each week remember this gospel of grace. But this does not mean that this will not be difficult. <laughs> it does not mean that it will be easy. In fact, most times it will be very difficult and hard for us. Whether it's sleepless nights the night before, maybe it's screaming kids, <laughs> some of us can relate to that. Maybe it's depression and anxiety, maybe it's distractions, maybe it's just waking up on Sunday and feeling spiritually cold spiritually dry, spiritually weary. And everything in this world is constantly pulling at us, constantly pulling at us, telling us two hours of sleep is better than worship with God's people. Two hours of sleep, you you really need that more than you need to go worship with God's people. And the world is saying, look, you have a whole extra day to do whatever you want to make up all the work that you didn't do this week. Look at that. But the best place for you and I to be in the whole world on the first day of the week is meeting with God's people, is worshiping Him in spirit and in truth, is to be in the house of the Lord, hearing the Word of God, hearing the Word of God, partaking of the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism, attending the means of grace, that if there's worship whether it's morning worship, evening worship, catechism, prayer, attend those things expectantly. Attend those things expecting God to work and move, to encourage your soul, to bring life and balm to your weary and sin-laden soul, to remind you of the promises of the gospel, and ultimately to rest. (laughs) That's why we come. We come to worship God, and we come to rest from our earthly labors. And there's a lot of practical questions that we can ask. Can I do this? Can I do that? Should I do this? Should I do that? And there's a, there's a kid's book um, that we read to our kids sometime. It's the Little House on the Prairie series. And there's this one where it takes place on a Sunday, and all the kids in the book don't like Sunday because they're not allowed to run. They're not allowed to like, do anything. And they're just talking about how they don't like that day. That's not how it should be. Sunday should be this great and glorious day where we worship with God's people and we rest from our earthly labors. And I think that that's hard for us sometimes to hear as Americans, to rest, <laughs> to, to just enjoy God and his creation, fellowship with one another, have people over to your house. Maybe that's not restful. Order a, a pizza or do a frozen pizza or whatever, you know, rest in God, worship with him, fellowship with God's people. And what does Christ say in the gospels? He, say, he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. It's for our good. It's for our benefit. It's not the other way around. So we need to remember this as we come together and as we worship. And I wanted to close um, by reading uh, one of the catechism questions from the Orthodox Catechism. It's talking about the fourth commandment. And I thought it really summarized how we should approach this. And it's important to remember that this isn't at the beginning of the catechism, it's not this thing that we do to earn our way up to God, it's because we are sinful and because of God's grace that we respond out of thankfulness in this way. And I just think that that's so helpful. And question number 115 says this, what are we taught by the fourth commandment? What are we taught by the fourth commandment? It says this, that one day in seven be kept in the worship of God. Under the Old Testament, this was the last day of the week, but under the gospel has changed to the first day of the week. The Lord's day is to be spent in private and public devotion, hearing the word of God diligently, practicing the gospel sacraments zealously, and doing the works of charity conscionably and resting from all of our earthly works except for cases of necessity. This was the practice of the holy apostles who best knew the mind of Christ as to the time of worship. We do not find in all the New Testament that any gospel church in the apostles' time set any other day apart solemnly to worship God but the first day, and this they were right to do. And listen to this. For if Israel, the natural seed of Abraham, was to keep the seventh day, to keep up the remembrance of their deliverance out of temporal bondage, how much more are we bound to keep the first day in remembrance of Christ's deliverance of us from eternal bondage? If they worshiped on the seventh day because they were saved out of earthly slavery, how much more should we worship God on the first day because Christ has saved us from eternal bondage to sin and misery? The people in the wilderness despised the manna from heaven because it was ordinary, because it was simple, because it wasn't flashy, but it was still miraculous how much more should we who have the true bread from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, not despise the ordinary means of grace, but attend them diligently so that we might hear from God and ultimately find our rest in him. This is what will sustain us to the end, the bread from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy that you have poured out upon us, your people, so graciously in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of God who took on flesh assumed our nature so that he might live the perfect life that you and I could not live and die the death that we deserved giving us his perfect righteousness that he secured, accomplishing the work of redemption, and upon his resurrection from the grave, conquering death on the first day of the week, we too worship and look forward to the ultimate rest that he has purchased and entered for us and for our salvation. We thank you for saving us from our sins, our bondage to and slavery to our sin. You have given us a new heart with new desires that, what does Jeremiah say? Have the law written on them. We now, as your people, desire to obey your commands and law, not to earn something from you, not to earn salvation, but because of what you have done for us in Christ. And so as we think about and contemplate how to keep this day holy, to serve you in worship and in rest. Would you strengthen us? Would you give us wisdom? And would you strengthen us, Lord, that as we weakly and frailly come to you week after week, we pray that you would come and fill us by your Spirit. You would strengthen us for the week of that we would not work to enter your rest, but that we would rest now so that we can work unto you.